Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That's L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Today, the spotlight is on Sally Ladinsky, Vice President of Customer Success at Intellitix, a provider of access control and cashless payment systems for major live events. Sally's also co-founder of Back of House, a free weekly newsletter covering the global live music industry. Sally also has a surprising hobby, which we talk about a bit here. Have a listen and enjoy. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good. All right, we have to start with the most important thing here that I found out about you, which is uh, what's the deal with being a commercial hot air balloon pilot? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that tends to be the thing people start with. Um, Yeah, I've been a pilot since... 2004, I got my pilot's license my last year, uh, going into my last year of college. Um, I grew up around ballooning. My dad is a pilot, so I always grew up around it, but um, didn't actually get my stuff together to do it until uh, I think my my college coach challenged me and said, you're going to do it this summer. Don't come back here without your license. And so (laughs) I did. And... uh, yeah, I've been, I love it. Um, it's been a great, a great thing for my family. Um, my, I met my husband through ballooning. He's also a balloon pilot. And uh, yeah, it's been great. And so what does it entail to become a pilot? Uh, a balloon pilot? Actually, less than you would think. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I need, I took a, uh, a class. So ground school, um, ballooning ground school, you don't have to take it, but I did. You have to take a written test um, and basics like airspace, weather, um, you know, basic balloon operations, how, you know, don't overload a balloon, how to look at charts, things like that. And then once you pass the written test, you solo, so fly by yourself. You need 10 hours of instruction, a solo, and pass the written test. And then you can take your private test, which is just like a driver's test where an instructor hops in the basket, you fly, he, asks, he or she asks you to do whatever uh, maneuvers, you land successfully, they sign you off, and boom, you can fly a balloon. Wow. And so did you ever do it commercially? Like, have you been paid to take people around and all that stuff? Yes. So um, that's to get a private license. Then to get your commercial license, you have roughly the same process, another written test, 35 hours this time. Um, And then you take another practical test. The practical test to be a commercial pilot is a little bit more focused on instruction. Because once you become a commercial hot air balloon pilot, you are also an instructor. And so I can teach others to get their license. Um, And I can also take rides. So we have a, my husband, my dad, and I own a hot air balloon company called 100 in Ballooning, Inc. 
and we take passengers for pleasure flights around our local area. Sometimes we travel to balloon festivals and take passengers for rides there. Um, I haven't done it as a full-time job. It is not very easy to be a full-time hot air balloonist, especially in New Jersey, but um, it's always been a fun thing for my family and we can make a little bit of money to cover our costs because it's not a cheap thing to do and yeah something we really enjoy that's really neat that's such a it's such a unique um a unique pursuit it's not something you see every day uh i mean i see it all the time (laughs) fair enough fair enough no it's true it's true it's a unique thing it's a fun thing and um it's a good conversation topic for sure yeah absolutely all right so um with that out of the way um what actually i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna move on that fast um (laughs) what do you get from it like what you know what what uh what uh what what muscles do you flex or what um you know what what challenges just is it a satisfying thing or is it simply something fun to share with your family could you is there a thing there yeah, the, I think there's a lot of things depending on what way you look at it. For sure, a thing to sh- that I share with my family. Um, and I have a, a daughter, she's about to turn three. She's now growing up in, in the ballooning community and that's awesome to watch. Uh, great community of people, supportive. Uh, we're at, in the area that I'm in, there's a good amount of other balloonists. So we've become a, our ballooning family. So that's wonderful. Um, when you're up in the air floating, it's just so peaceful and so beautiful. And that's amazing. But there's also other things that I get from it. Like, um, I have to be prepared for everything. Um, so, you know, you, you practice things, you are prepared, you, um, I don't want to say prepared for disaster, but you have to prepare for disaster. Um, I've learned how to give instruction and how to teach other people how to fly. Um, and, uh, I think a lot of it or some of it ties into events too, where like I have checklists and I go through the same routines all the time and I check and I, everything from like, before I get in the basket, I always put my gloves on. I put my hat, I always fly with a hat for some reason, but it's just like, these are the things I do. And, um, learning that that's the right way to do things. That's my way of doing things. But um, I think all those things kind of play into other aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting that uh, the, um, you know, I think of it as almost like, uh, you know, parachuting, boating, any of these sort of adventure activities where, um, where people get in trouble is when they deviate from their checklist. Like when they think they're too confident or they're too familiar with the process, that's actually the moment when you should rely on the checklist. Um, Oh yeah. And you know, when first got my license, I was super confident and did some things that looking back are super stupid, (laughs) but um, uh, I've learned a lot from them and I, I learned something new every time I fly every time I'm in the air, every time I'm around it, whether I'm flying or someone else is flying. Um, and I think that's important too. Yeah. It's, I, I think something that's really interesting is, um, you know, as a, um, as someone who isn't in that community, um, and I don't know if you still have the ability to perceive this because you are so entrenched in it, but 
there is that that very unique feeling that people get when they witness a hot air balloon. Like you can see it even if it's in the distance, but certainly if it's if it's anywhere near you and you see it in the sky, it's it's always exciting and like kind of fun and and I can't quite describe what the thrill is, but uh, I certainly know I've had it. I've seen other people react. It's it's a very unique, unique thing. Oh yeah, that doesn't go away. Uh, I take pictures every single flight. My phone is filled with thousands of pictures of ballooning. Even when I'm flying over the same area, I see the same things, but they just look different every time. Uh, and the way when you fly over someone's house and they yell, they yell up to you and they wave and they don't think you can hear them. But when you yell back, they're so excited or they'll <laughs> say, land here, I've got coffee or I've got a beer, come and land in my house. Um, the thrill of kids. And that's something I really love about it, too, is um, the ability to share it with kids. Like we invite whenever we land, we invite people to come up, to get close, to get to experience ballooning, because just as you said, it's, it's thrilling for everyone, young and old, and we don't want to shut people out. We want them to be able to experience it. And um, even if they're just watching us, you know, not actually taking a ride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned that you're based in New Jersey now, is that right? That's correct. And yep. is that where you grew up? That is where I grew up. I grew up uh, about five minutes from where I live right now. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. And um, what part of New Jersey are you in? Are you near Manhattan? Are you closer to Philadelphia? Are you way out northwest? Where, where are you? <laughs> I'm actually in the middle of Manhattan and Philadelphia. I'm in uh, oh, wow. northwestern in Hunterdon County. So about an hour outside of Manhattan, directly west and north of Philadelphia, about an hour as well. That's great. That gives you a lot of airport options. <laughs> uh, Newark is my primary airport, but yes, there's other options. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how um, you have your hands in multiple things. So how do you describe what's the what's the what's the through line um, that describes what you do professionally? <laughs> Uh, probably events is the through line. Um, so I do have my hands in a lot of things. I uh, just started a new a new gig working with IntelliTix and CrowdLink as their vice president of customer success. Um, and this is the first time I've been on the, the services side mm -hmm. of events. Prior to that, I've always been on the event side, producing the events, my hands very dirty, actually everything very dirty when you're producing events. <laughs> um, and so this is a new opportunity for me. And um, I also, as you, as you know, uh, started Back of House, a live events newsletter during the pandemic. We just hit our year anniversary and going strong. And um also all about live events. Our goal there is to inform and educate the live event community. So events is definitely the glue that is or the constant in my career from the very beginning. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's come back to that in a minute then. And, um, and take me back, back to the beginning. Um, why, why events? Well, uh, because of ballooning actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so when I was in college, I got an internship at the New Jersey Balloon Festival, which happens to be right in my backyard. It's the largest balloon summertime balloon festival in the country. Um, I got an internship there because I'd been going to the event since I was a kid. And one year I heard them talk about interns and I thought, all right, this sounds fun. I'll be an intern there. So I was. 
Um, and then after, so that was going into my senior year, same summer that I got my license, go back to school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I liked the event. Events were fine, but I didn't think that was going to be my career. I was an art major and a math minor at Colgate University. And I thought, uh, probably teach because that's what I felt like I was qualified to do. Um, and I play, I also played field hockey at Colgate. So I thought I could teach and coach. It'd be great. Uh, but didn't really have any plans. Graduated the day after graduation. I got a phone call from the balloon festival saying, Hey, our festival director just quit. Come work with us for the summer. And I was like, all right, well, I don't really want to work there, but I also don't have a job and therefore don't have any money. And you're offering me that. So, okay. Uh, so I did. <laughs> it's funny how that works. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I was still looking at uh, some teaching opportunities, but ended up staying there. I think I did five festivals with them and really just fell in love with it. I mean, the, I fell in love with um, the buildup. I fell in love with the producing something that made other people happy and like the thrill on their face at the event, whether it was like going on the kitty rides or watching someone on stage or the balloons, like knowing that I was part of that, knowing that I made that happen was such that feeling just, that's what got me into events. So in the beginning I was like, this is cool. But once I started, I was hooked. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, Tell me a little bit then about the journey. Um, there's a few things that stand out for me uh, other than just the hot air ballooning. Um, but, um, well, at the risk of, of talking about your sort of path, um, not in a linear fashion, talk to me about the professional fighters league. What the heck is that? And like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, professional fighters league is a MMA league. Um, started in 2018 so when I joined in 2019 it was I was part of their second season um they went on a hiatus during the pandemic um now they're in their third season they are a MMA league so building off of the sports format in the United States that we all are so familiar with where there's a regular season a championship uh playoffs and a championship other MMA uh companies like UFC, which everyone knows so well, and Bellator and um, are more promotion-based one-off fights where uh, two guys or two girls get in a ring, they fight, and uh, you're not quite sure why those two are fighting each other other than that's what you're told. It's the draw, and, yeah. Right, and it's, it's about the draw, um, whereas at the Professional Fighters League, it's about uh, – your skills. And so it's a meritocracy. You fight twice in the regular season to gain points or to earn points. And then those points seed you in the playoffs. And then there's a bracket style playoffs. And then they go to the championship and the champion, each champion. So there are six weight classes. Each champion takes home a million dollars, which is very real money, very real, even for uh, some of the big names in at the UFC uh, don't make a million dollars a fight. So um, it's very cool. And it was really fun to be part of the growth of that organization. Yeah. Yeah. Are you an enthusiast? 
Uh, I was not. Um, yeah. when, I, uh, when I first started, and I say was, or before I started, I wouldn't even watch it on TV. Like I thought MMA was bloody and kind of scary and gross, and I didn't want to watch it at all. But um, what I found working at the PFL, and this is true of a lot of their fans too, is you become attached to the athletes. Yeah. So I understood what the athletes were doing. I got to spend time with the athletes during fight week, seeing their pre-fight routines and what they went through. They weren't just two people, you know, punching each other and kicking each other. Like there's their athletes. And I got to see that. And then I started following them and I still, even though I'm no longer involved with them at all, I still follow a lot of them on social media because I think, they're interesting people and I root for the ones that I want to root for. And, um, and I'll still watch it on TV now, which my husband thinks is hilarious because before this, I never wanted to watch it all. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about like, what's the, um, what's the event model there? Um, you know, are they, is it a touring production? Do the, do the different fights take place? regionally are the fighters do they represent a city like how does how does that work all of those things so um i can speak to the season that i was involved in they're currently in the middle of the third season right now and so i'm definitely an outsider that there and covid has changed some of the things mm -hmm. but uh in the second season we did mini residencies so we went to different venues for each stage so the first portion of the regular season was at um, uh, Nassau Coliseum on Long Island, did three fights there. Then we did the second portion was at Ocean Casino Resort in Atlantic City, did three fights there. Then we went to Las Vegas for the playoffs, did three fights in Las Vegas at the Mandalay Bay. And then we finished with the championship at Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve. So kind of touring kind of mini residencies. Yeah. And when I was working on the 2020 season before everything got canceled, I was on a plane almost every week of 2020 leading up to March where I was looking at venues and we were planning our, we were going to do a lot more of a tour hitting uh, target cities that our marketing team had said, these are good cities for us to go to because they either had a history of fight fans or they had ties to a fighter. Like I went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, because one of our fighters, that was his hometown. And he had a huge following in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Yeah. So we were going to do a fight there. Yeah. Is it, um, how regulated is it? Like, can you, can you stage an event in any state or do you have to deal with regulatory bodies or? Yeah. So there are regulatory bodies in each state, um, that allows it. And I want to say, 20 something states, and I don't quote me on that, uh, that allowed our format, but we had to use, uh, we had to work with those governing bodies in each state. We had to have the um, referees from each state came in and um, oversaw our operations. Wow, that's so interesting. And, and, and uh, just to state the obvious, that the history of that or the intention of that is the protection of the fighters? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, what did you do at town square? <laughs> at town square, uh, when I left town square, I was overseeing the festivals and expos division of the, of the company. So we produced 
music festivals, music and camping festivals throughout the United States, um, mostly country. And also, so I oversaw all of those. I also oversaw our expos. We did some B2B expos, some B2C expos, including the largest bridal show in the country, which I didn't know that was a thing, but that takes place in Phoenix, Arizona with over 9,000 people attending a one day bridal show. Um, and all, we also did some town fairs. So amusements, music, uh, kids entertainment as well. Yeah. And, uh, I, it's a, that, that, that business is, is so interesting to me. Um, you know, I guess broadly speaking, it's events, but there's, a um, well, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but my perception is that there's, you know, there's the ticketed consumer component, but then there's all of the B2B component in terms of vendors, on-site exhibitors, like there's, there's multiple revenue streams, I guess would be the, what I'm calling for there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got, you've got, you know, the people who buy the vendor booths themselves and the sponsors, but then you also have the food and beverage. So that's another revenue stream and uh, merchandise and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so tell me a little bit about Intellitics um, or tell our listeners a little bit about, cause I probably know a little bit more than, than some of the folks listening do. Um, what does the company do overall? Who are its buyers and what do you do there? Sure. So Intellitix is an event technology company. We provide access control and cashless. So mostly through RFID, through RFID wristbands primarily um, to various festivals and events uh, around the world. We're a global country, a uh, global company, excuse me. Uh, some of our clients include uh, Tomorrowland, which recently was canceled, um, uh, I'm trying to think of other town square used to be a client. So that's how I first got introduced to them. Uh, Izu life is beautiful. Comic-Con, um, lots of different clients use Intellitics. Um, and so we do access control and cashless. Uh, we are launching a new product called CrowdBlink, uh, coming up very soon, which is, um, access, it's ticketing access control and cashless through uh, QR codes. So through your phone. And uh, that is the part that I'm very much involved in. Uh, so my role as head of customer success is to build out this new customer success team, build out our customer success plans and our customer success procedures um, it is going to be a largely self-serve product. So whereas Intellitix is lots of equipment, lots of people, lots of networks involved on site, this is more of a event in a box or cashless ticketing and access control in a box. You can set it up yourself. You can deploy it yourself. You don't need us. We're here if you do. We'll provide all the support you need, but you don't actually need us. Yeah. So I'm using my experience both using Intellitix as a client and that software and also from all of the events that I've produced to build out this uh, all of the things and the resources we need to have a self-serve self-deploying product. So are you building the solution that you would have wanted or you're building the like you know you're wearing your hat as a, I'm an event producer 
this is the, for me to have been successful, I would have wanted this suite. Is that sort of how you're approaching it? Yeah, kind of. Um, I think that there, sometimes with IntelliTics, um, it only works for, not only works, it only makes sense. The ROI is only there for larger events. With CrowdBlink, this will work for smaller events yeah. and it makes sense for smaller events. And that's really our target. It also works for larger events for sure. Um, but yeah, so events where I wanted that data, I wanted to be able to have the access control but couldn't afford it before, CrowdBlink is a great solution. And I'm trying to continue to maintain that event producer hat. Like this is how I want it to work. And I really want someone to do this for me, but I think I can do this on my own and yeah. kind of thinking through those things. Yeah. How does, um, how does cashless work? Is it, is it stored value or is it attached to your credit card? Uh, it can be either one. Oh, okay. uh, I didn't so, realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two options right now with IntelliTix. It is um, all closed loop. So it's all stored value. You top up, you add funds to your wristband either through a card or through cash. Uh, and then each time you spend, it just depletes that volume or that balance, your balance goes down. Um, with CrowdBlank, you'll be able to do um, open loop, which is just attached to your credit card. So every time you spend, it's another transaction on your credit card. Yeah, yeah. And um, what are some of the, I, I've never seen um, the back end, if you will, or the, or the client facing tools. Um, are event producers learning things like who goes where, where people congregate? Uh, like, what do you do? They leave with a new impression of how their footprint is utilized. Yeah, so there's lots of different things that you, different ways you can configure um, the access control setup. Um, you you can either do in and out, you can do validate. So that gives you an idea of capacity. So, for example. You want to know how many people are in the VIP area at any one time. You have them scan in and scan out. So, you know, if you are just concerned with people getting the right people getting into VIP, you're just validating to make sure they can get in, but you don't really know how many people are in there at a given time. Um, ways that I've used it in the past are to help with um, understanding traffic flow and which helps with staffing. So for example, at the main gate, I need to know how many lanes I need to have at my main entrance and, and when I need to have, say I, say I determine I need 10 lanes. Do I need all 10 open at two o'clock when the event opens or do I, can I have like three open then? And, but I definitely need all 10 right before the headliner hits because that's when everyone's really coming in. And I can tell that based on how many people are scanning in at a specific time. Mm -hmm. Does that allow... Um the VIP example is a great one. Does that, would that allow you then to, as the event producer, maybe sell more capacity than would be obvious? In other words, if your VIP area, let's just say holds a hundred people at max capacity, but because of the analytics of knowing when people are coming in and out, would that allow you to say sell 120 because you know, they're at 120 or never in there at the same time. Like, are those, is that an application that's real? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, in terms of the QR code, what's your, is your sense that that's an, an end state technology or is it the jumping off point to just under, like to mobile presence, to like, to the point where whether it's 
facial recognition or or the fact that your phone's on site like is do you see a day where it's just true unrestricted freedom of movement for people that's a great question um i don't know the answer to that i think uh will we be able to do it will the technology get there where you can just walk around and and uh your phone or whatever, whatever wearable device will know whether you can or can't go somewhere. I think the technology will get there where uh, what I'm not sure about is like, how do you manage that from a security standpoint? Like um, sometimes it's just nice to have a visual, a, a visual like, Hey, you're wearing a red wristband and only black wristbands can go in here. I mean, uh, that was our dream at Town Square would be was to order one wristband for the entire event because uh, if you've ever ordered wristbands for events, it is a no-win situation. You can never order the right amount of the right ones. You either have too many or too few. And I've been in both situations. You can't win. Um, so our thought was, hey, we'll just order black wristbands and we'll use this technology and we'll always know where everyone can go and it'll be awesome. And the tech works. The tech allows you to do that. You trust that technology. It'll scan red when it's supposed to scan red. It'll scan green when it's supposed to scan green. But there's still something to that visual of the red wristband can go here and the green wristband can't. So yeah, yeah, I could understand that. I can, especially the first few times. It's got. I would imagine it's it changes the sort of the mental framework that all the observers or security people or staff are using it. There's something very tangible about, okay, this is a red room. And if everybody's exactly. got the black one, it's like, I've lost that ability to, to be suspicious. Even if the technology is sort of foolproof, like there's nobody in here that shouldn't be here, but my eyes can't verify that for me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think that's just the way that we're wired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about back of house. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned before, I started, I was part of a group that started back of house and uh, middle of the or early days of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, for me, I had, uh, so I lost my job. The PFL decided that, or they canceled their season like many other people and um, my position as head of event operations and ticketing was no longer needed, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I was, uh, it was tough, like just mentally, it was tough. I think like so many people in our industry, so much of my identity was tied into my job and what I was doing. And I'd never not worked. And all of a sudden I was doing nothing. Well, that's not true. I was chasing around a one and a half year old kid. Um, all day. And so um, I yeah. finally like realized I needed to figure things out. I needed a schedule. And I started waking up early every morning because um, I needed time for myself that I wasn't chasing around a toddler. Um, and I would get up and I would drink my coffee and I would read the news. And I got several email newsletters like Morning Brew and the New York Times. And I got um, front office sports and Axios sports because I was most recently in the sports industry. And, and I found that staying up on event news was really challenging because I had to go to multiple places. I couldn't get it right in my inbox that you know, I was reading Polestar and um, Billboard, 
but uh, that wasn't focused specifically on events, what I was looking for. Um, so I started to ask around what other people were doing and how they were getting their event news. Uh, and one of the people I asked was Hannah Wingler, uh, who I'd worked with at Town Square. And, and at the time, Hannah and um, my, our now third co-founder, uh, Jesse Barron, had started putting together lists and calendars of all the webinars that were happening. Mm. If you remember, March, April, May 2020, everyone was producing a webinar. Everyone was doing something to do something because there was nothing happening in the industry, but also like, you know, to produce content. Uh, both of them are younger and newer to the industry and really felt that without the ability to be on site at an event, they were losing their ability to learn. So they really wanted to gobble up as much information as they can. And so they started watching all these webinars and, and they were making lists. And then they started sharing those lists with friends. And then I had a conversation with Hannah and she was like, wait a minute, let's talk to Jesse. So the three of us got on the phone and we thought, and back of house was born and it was born as a way to inform and educate our community. So there's the, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to watch. Here's what you need to listen to. Here's how you can learn. Um, here is the top news of the week. And then here's someone in the industry who can teach you something, or here's someone in the industry that's doing something. And we started this weekly newsletter. Our first one went out to like five people. We each sent it to a couple friends. And um, now we have nearly 2000 subscribers all over the world, all different areas of the industry, uh, all different levels in the industry, everything from students looking to get in to um, managers, directors, founders, C-level executives were kind of all over the place. And um, now that the industry is waking back up and people are going back to work, people are asking, we keep getting asked, like, are you going to keep doing this? And I think there's even more of a need now because um, anyone who's ever worked an event knows that when your head's down, when you're on site, you're in the bubble and you have no idea what's going on outside of what you're doing. So as people are doing things, things, first of all, things are changing rapidly. Countries are opening, countries are shutting down, events are happening, they're not happening. But also like you, you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't know what anyone else is doing. So um we're going to keep going. We're enjoying it. We want it to be digestible. We want it to be something that you can read quickly, get the news you need to know, uh, click out if you want to, or just get everything from within our newsletter and go about your day. Do you primarily see the publication now or going into the future as mainly an aggregator, or do you see yourself doing more original journalism and coverage? Um. For now, mainly an aggregator. Um, this is, our team has grown from the three of us. We now have eight people on our team, but um, we're all doing this as a side project. It's no one's full-time job at this point. And so um, we don't yet have the bandwidth to do that. Our headliner feature is our only real original content. Um, everything else is an aggregator. So will that change down the road? I'm not sure. But right now, it's kind of it's mostly aggregator, a little bit of original content. Yeah. Do you? Um, and, and maybe this is unfair to ask at this stage, but do you foresee this as 
a growing commercial endeavor or is it more of like a service to the community that means so much to you? Right now, it's definitely the service to the community. Um, we we want to be a resource. Um, we have started generating a little bit of revenue, which is really nice. Um, people are entirely uh, inbound. So people have reached out to us asking us to be involved because they see value in uh, in back of house and in our community, which is awesome. Um, I don't know if we'll go full on morning brew or where, you know, where we're a business, but I don't think that's out of the question. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, I'll look forward to watching it uh, evolve and unfold. <laughs> thank you thank you um well it's great to talk to you uh thank you for making time to do this yeah i've really enjoyed it and thank you and you were part of back of house we had a great time talking to you and uh featuring your story so i'm happy to to do the same yeah that was a great that was a great conversation and i got really great feedback from people on it so i hope uh, i hope this generates the same for you Thank you so much, Sally Ladinsky and the teams at Back of House and Intellitix. Thank you, Ant Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Okay, in the clouds, but I love it right here with my feet on the ground.